Well, he was asked to do the man's funeral, and in the midst of the funeral, the pastor remembered the note that the man had written. It was still in his jacket pocket. And still having never read the note, he pulled it from his jacket, and he held it up, and he told the congregation, he says, I have in my hand a piece of paper that contains the last words of our friend and our brother. The pastor unfolded the note, but he never read it. For the man's note read, You are standing on my oxygen tube. (laughs) Well, 2 Timothy contains the final thoughts of a dying man. Paul pens his last words. He's in Nero's prison. He's awaiting a certain execution when he writes down his final heartfelt instructions for his sidekick Timothy. And as Timothy unfolds Paul's note, this young man discovers what the apostle is thinking as he approaches eternity. In 62 AD, prisoner Paul was shipped from Caesarea to Rome to be tried before Caesar Nero. And though we have no record of the encounter between Paul and Nero, you can be certain that Paul exhibited a bold witness for Jesus Christ. You can also be certain that Nero rejected that witness. Secular historians, though, note a marked change in Caesar Nero about the time of his encounter with Paul. Oh, somewhere around 62, 63 A.D. You see, Nero went nuts. It's possible that his rejection of the gospel of Jesus, his resistance to the Holy Spirit, is what caused him to go insane. It produced his hard heart. It produced his cruel spirit. Nero was an egomaniac. And in order to fuel his ego, he built stadiums and he built temples throughout the city of Rome. But you see, Rome was getting crowded and it was running out of space. And Nero, in order to fulfill his ambitions, needed more room to build. And so on the night of July the 19th, 64 AD, a fire broke out in the woodsheds near the Circus Maximus. This inferno raged for 10 days and ended up torching two-thirds of the city of Rome. Later, it was reported that some of Nero's servants were seen running from the woodsheds where the fire started just before the blaze broke out. Rumors started flying around the city that Nero was the one who had started the fire. You've heard the expression, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Well, apparently he did very little to douse the flames that night. He wanted the city to burn so that he could rebuild it in his own honor. But after the fire... (laughs) Things got hot for Nero. Fingers began to point in his direction. And the emperor needed a scapegoat. And guess who he blamed the disaster upon? The Christians. And that launched a crusade of persecution against the followers of Jesus. Nero went out and he burned the believers at the stake to light his parties. He clothed them in animal skins and he fed them to the wild dogs. Christians were executed by gladiators and tossed to the lions. And finally, in 65 A.D., the terror sort of culminated when Nero arrested Christianity's two chief leaders, Peter and Paul, and he ordered their execution. Peter was crucified on an upside-down cross, and Paul was beheaded for his faith in Jesus Christ. But while on death row, Paul wrote a very emotional, a very heartfelt farewell to Timothy, and we call that letter... Second Timothy. With that background, you'll note how Paul opens his letter, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ 
by the will of God according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? Paul is awaiting execution. He's about to die, but he's looking forward not to death, but to life. You'd expect a gloomy cloud to be hanging over his head. Instead, Paul is looking forward to a glorious sunrise. He's eagerly anticipating the eternal life that Jesus Christ has promised him. Paul's common greeting to the churches was grace and peace. But you'll notice in verse 2 how he addresses Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's interesting. When Paul addresses the churches, he addresses them with grace and peace. But when he addresses the pastors, Timothy and Titus, he says grace, mercy, and peace. And why? (laughs) It's because he knows pastors need a lot of mercy. (laughs) Apparently, he knows we need extra mercy. And you know, here's an interesting thought. Here's a way that you can be like Jesus. Have a little mercy on your pastor, would you? (laughs) You'd think that under the circumstances, Paul's first thought would be to ask for prayer. But instead, he assures Timothy that he's praying for him. Night and day, he says. In verse 5, Paul remembers Timothy's genuine faith. And how it had been passed down to him by his mother Eunice. And his grandmother Lois. Guys, here's hope for all you single moms. Acts 16 verse 1 tells us that Timothy's dad was an unbeliever. All his spiritual influence had apparently come from his mother and his grandmother. But the good news is, that was enough. Notice what kind of faith was passed down to Timothy. It was, he says, a genuine faith. In fact... I think you'll find that's the only kind of faith that can get passed down from parents to kids. Kids have a sixth sense. (laughs) Kids have this uncanny ability of being able to sniff out hypocrisy a mile away. And if your faith is only a Sunday faith, if it's a half-hearted faith, if it's not a genuine faith, it'll never get passed down to your children. It has to be a genuine faith. And understand, passing on your faith to your children is not like passing down curly hair or big feet. That's easy. Spiritual values are not transmitted through genetics. Neither are they passed down like the flu or the cold. Faith isn't some germ that gets carried through the air. No, passing on faith is like passing a football. It requires a voluntary action on both ends of the reception. The passer... He fixes his sights on the target. Then he delivers the ball at the right place, at the right time, with just the right touch. And this is also what makes for an effective parent. Targeting, timing, and touch. Think through what it is you really want to convey. When is a good time to convey it? And then how I need to go about that conveyance. And then... It's still up to the child. The child still has a part to play. They have to reach out and grab it and pull it in. But let me say, there is nothing that a parent does that is more vital than passing on genuine faith to his children. So what if you clothe them and feed them and educate them and teach them to throw a baseball and send them to college only to watch them grow up? Marry, even become great citizens, 
But then to have them die and go to hell. What in the world have you accomplished? Very little. Child advocate James Dobson, he comments, I urge you as parents of young children to provide for them an unshakable faith in Jesus Christ. This is your most important function as mothers and fathers. How can anything else compare in significance to the goal of keeping the family circle unbroken in the life to come? There is nothing more important to us parents than passing on genuine faith to our children. Verse 6 tells us that the church had laid hands on Timothy, but Timothy had been reluctant to lay hold of the gifts that God had given him. You see, Timothy was timid. Timothy, you see, was a victim of his fears. Perhaps he was afraid of failure. You know, many people are. They'd rather not start something than take the risk of trying and failing. Maybe it was a fear of people. It could have been that Timothy had a fear of the unknown, the uncertain. Paul reminds his young protege that it wasn't God who had fathered his fears. Notice in verse 7, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. God gave to Timothy power to succeed, not fail. No need to fear failure. God had given him love that overwhelms and overcomes our fears. How can I really be afraid of a person that I genuinely love? Love, you see, drives out fears. And God gave Timothy a godly perspective, a sound mind that speaks the truth and silences all of the worries and all of the what-ifs and all of the fears. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, guys. He's given us a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. In verse 8, Paul invites Timothy to share in the sufferings of the gospel. Hey, you know, we all want to share in the blessings of the gospel, don't we? We all want to share in the ministry of the gospel. We even want to share in the glory of the gospel. But what about the sufferings of the gospel? Paul says to Timothy in verse 9, To think, think, Timothy, of all that Jesus has done for you. He saved you. He's called you by His grace. He's abolished death and He's promised us life and immortality. And then look at what Jesus will do for us. Verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep what I have committed to Him until that day. What a promise. Paul was willing to lay his life on the line because he knew his destiny was sealed. Understand, Jesus is committed to whatever you commit to Him. Did you hear that? Jesus is committed to whatever you commit to Him. If you give Him your life, He'll see to it that you're standing with Him one day, regardless of what happens today, or in any day for that matter. In that day... You'll be standing next to Jesus. He'll see to it. He's committed to you when you commit your life to Him. I love what Paul says here in verse 12. He says, I know whom I have believed. Notice he doesn't say, I know what I have believed, but I know whom I have believed. Remember, a Christian trusts in a person. Not in a principle, not in a philosophy, not in a doctrine. Our faith should be in a person, in the person Jesus Christ. You and I have been persuaded by a Savior who keeps His promises. In verse 13, Paul encourages Timothy to hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. 
In other words, Timothy doesn't need new truth. No, he needs to hold on to and live out the truth that he's already been told and taught. This is why church historian Richard Niebuhr, he comments this way. He says, the great Christian revolutions come not by discovery of something that was not known before. They have happened when somebody takes radically something that was always there. We don't need new truth. We just need to be taught what's already there. And we need to put it to practice in a radical way. In verse 15, Paul hints at how dark his circumstances have become. During his first Roman imprisonment, several of his friends had stayed by his side there in Rome. But not now. He moans, all those in Asia turned away from me. This time he was all by himself. He does, though, acknowledge one man, a man by the name of Onesiphorus. He came from Ephesus to Rome to visit and to refresh Paul when he heard that he was in prison. It reminds me of Alvin Strait. Old Alvin of Lawrence, Iowa. Alvin, you see, is 73 years old and he doesn't get out much. He can't get a driver's license because his eyes are so bad. And he doesn't use public transportation. It's too much of a hassle, so he just stays at home. But when he heard that his brother had suffered a stroke, Alvin just had to pay him a visit. He had to be by his side and give him some encouragement. And so he climbed aboard his 1966 John Deere riding lawnmower. And old Alvin drove from Iowa all the way to Blue River, Wisconsin. A total of 200 miles on his John Deere lawnmower. You see, Alvin wanted to be by his brother's side in a time of need. What an example of brotherly dedication. And that's the dedication that Onesiphorus showed Paul when he journeyed to Rome. In verse 16, Paul says of Onesiphorus, He often refreshed me. That Greek word translated refresh means a breath of fresh air. And that's a farce. He was a breath of fresh air to me. Let me ask you, are you a breath of fresh air to your friends, to your family members in Christ? Are you a breath of fresh air? Or when they see you approaching to people, oh, watch out for him. He's bad breath. He's a real stinker. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, is the golden principle when it comes to Christian discipleship. Paul says to Timothy, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You know, I could go out and I could win people to Jesus and hopefully in my lifetime, I would be able to affect the eternal destiny of several hundred people. Or I could win a few people but then help them grow and mature in their relationship with God and then teach them to do the same for someone else who in turn would do the same for someone else and then on and on it would go. And before long, the exponential effect would kick in. And rather than hundreds, now thousands of people would be affected for the kingdom of God. It's the difference between 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 equals 10 versus Two times two times two times two times two equals 32. As D.L. Moody put it, I would rather set ten men to work than to do the work of ten men. The idea is you invest your life in someone or two or three people who can then invest their lives in two or three people and before long we've grown into a great movement, a great revival. See, it doesn't take much to get the ball rolling. 
if we all be, if we'll pass on to others genuine faith and a sincere heart and really pour our hearts out and disciple the, the people that God brings to us. Paul now is at the end of his road and he's reflecting back on his experiences serving Jesus and he realizes that endurance has been the key to finishing well. You know, a lot of people are just a flash in the pan. They run for a day or two or a few months or a few years. But cultivating endurance is the key to living a whole lifetime for Jesus Christ. And Paul explains the ingredients of an enduring faith, a persevering faith, with three pictures. In verses 3 and 4, he mentions a soldier. In verse 5, an athlete. And in verse 6, a farmer. He says of the soldier that he maintains a wartime mentality. You see, when you're in the heat of combat, your normal pursuits are put on hold until the war is won. The battle comes first for the soldier. And likewise, the believer is embroiled in a battle. And our energies, our attention have to be focused. Distractions will defeat us. Robert Moffat is the one who made this comment. He said, we have eternity to celebrate our victories, but only one short hour before sunset to win them. You see, the soldier knows how to put off the unnecessary in order to attend to the priority and fight the battle at hand. But there's also the athlete. He's to compete, but in doing so, he must play within the rules. You see, to win at all costs will ultimately cost you the win. You've got to abide by the rules or you'll become disqualified. Any success you achieve will be nullified And for the Christian, this means that the ends never justifies the means. Always remember that. God not only wants to be served, He wants to be served according to His ways and His means and His methods. The athlete plays to win, but he knows he has to stay within the parameters of God's will in doing so. And then, thirdly, there's the farmer. His strength fizzles If he never eats from his own harvest. And his example teaches us a lesson. The saint who's too busy serving God to strengthen himself in God is going to collapse rather than conquer. Doing for God and drawing from God need to go hand in hand. The former is impossible without the latter. The successful farmer is the one who takes in some of the surplus in order to feed himself. You can be passing out God's Word, preaching, sharing, giving, giving, but if you don't take time to feed your own heart, your own soul, and what it is you're sharing, you won't endure, you won't last, you won't make it. If you want to be a long-haul Christian, and how many of you do? I think we all do. If you want to be a real lifer for Christ... Remember to be like a soldier and put off distractions. Be like an athlete and stay within God's will and be like a farmer and take in spiritual nourishment. Paul makes a powerful statement in chapter 2 verse 9. He admits that though though he is chained, the word of God is not chained. Isn't that a powerful thought? Chain the messenger if you will, but no one can chain the message. It's been said the Bible, it outlives, it outlives, it outloves, it outreaches, it outranks, it outruns all other books. You can change the messenger, but you can't chain or restrain the Word of God. It's powerful. 
faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. It's a bird. It's a plane. Nope. It's the Bible. Verse 11 begins, This is a faithful saying. Here's a phrase that appears elsewhere in Paul's letters. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. And Titus chapter 3, verse 8 all use this same terminology. These faithful sayings apparently were liturgies that were used in the early church. These were capsulated statements of faith that the church recited as reminders of vital truths. Verses 11 through 13. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. The theme of this ancient creed of of Paul's in the church is the faithfulness of God to His Word. Now, people have misinterpreted this last line of Paul's poem. They've misinterpreted it as a license to be faithless. They'll say, see, look, even if I stop believing in Jesus, He'll remain faithful to me. He'll never deny me. But that's not what He says. It doesn't say Jesus cannot deny you. It says He cannot deny Himself. Verse 13 has already told us, if we deny Him, He also will deny us. He can deny you. Paul is saying, if you don't continue in your faith, you give Jesus no choice but to deny you. Why? Because He has to be faithful to His Word. And speaking of God's Word, let's learn to handle it properly, interpret it accurately. Verse 15 tells us, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or rightly cutting the word of truth. What good is a workman who isn't skilled in the tools of his trade? He's ashamed to his craft. And as Bible believers, you and I, we need to learn to interpret the Scriptures accurately. In grade school, I rode the bus home every afternoon. And to make sure that the kids boarded the right bus... The county had printed the numbers of the bus. Every bus had a specific number, and the school bus number was printed right next to the door of the bus to make sure that you boarded the right bus. And I'll never forget, our bus was number 215. I rode bus 215. And even as a kid, it reminded me of this verse. And what an appropriate association. Because, guys, if you want to be sure that you make it home to heaven, if you want to be certain that you're on the right bus, then pay heed to 2 Timothy 2.15. Be a diligent student. Learn to rightly divide the word of truth. In verse 16, Paul warns Timothy to shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. We all know that early diagnosis of a malignancy is the best, it's the best prognosis for recovery if you catch it early. And the same is true when it comes to false doctrine within the church. It needs to be caught and eradicated quickly. Chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Compare the church to a big house with lots of utensils. 
It's got its expensive china and its crystal, as well as its paper plates and its plastic cups. And the same dichotomy, Paul says, exists within the church. There are teachers who convey sound doctrine, and yet there are teachers who spout flawed and incomplete doctrines. Paul would ask us, would you prefer to eat off the good china or from crumpled paper? Guys, don't compromise when it comes to what you're listening to. Pursue sound doctrine. And you'll become a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the Master, prepared for every good work. But entertain questionable, or tainted, or just teaching that's, oh, just a little off here and there. And ultimately, you'll end up a vessel of dishonor. In other words, drink from cracked pots, and don't be surprised if you become one. Paul encourages Timothy in verse 22, Flee also youthful lusts. It was Ronald Reagan who once said, Middle age is when you have two temptations and you choose the one that gets you home by 9 o'clock in the evening. (laughs) Well, Timothy, he wasn't middle aged just yet. He was still a young buck. He was a red-blooded guy. He had hearty hormones and an active libido. And like all young men, he was vulnerable to that rush of adventure, to that flattery of the flirtatious woman, to that appeal of carnal stimulation. And this is why Paul put, really speaks to him and really puts him on his toes. He says, beware, Timothy, of youthful lusts. Beware. Don't fall back into those traps. Don't flirt with it. Rather, flee from it. Chapter 3 begins with a prediction about the end times. But know this, Paul says, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Understand, Paul is telling us that the world we live in is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. The closer we get to the return of Jesus, the more corrupt and blasphemous our society will become. Listen to the description in verse 2. Reading Paul's commentary on perilous times sounds so much like present times. It's a perfect description really of our day. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Did you guys back over here hear that? After the Duke of Windsor returned home from a visit to America, he was asked, what impressed him most about our country? And he answered, it was the way American parents obeyed their children. (laughs) It's a sign of the end times when kids no longer respect their parents. Paul continues his list of end time attitudes. Unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal. Recently, David Walsh, president of the National Institute on Media and Family, he made this observation. He said, It is tragically ironic that at the very time we are wringing our hands about violent behavior among young people, we are simultaneously entertaining them with it. Isn't that odd? The movies they watch, the video games that they play, all endorse violence. And yet we bemoan the fact when one of them goes to school and commits some act of violence. Not only have we thrown out our moral compass, hey, we've lost all logic. 
Paul continues, he says, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boy, how does that sound? That sum up our society today. In 1994, a USA Today polled Americans ages 18 to 64 to discover what they did with their leisure time. And at the top of the list was watching television. The average American watches television 15.1 hours a week. Whereas the average American spent less than one hour, just 50 minutes a day, on any kind of religious or spiritual activity. I've heard it put, in America, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. When men value pleasure more than a relationship with God, it's more than a travesty. It is a sign that the end of the age is drawing near. And last on Paul's list, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Paul predicts, predicts the day when men and women will say they believe in God. They'll quote proper creeds. They'll engage in comforting rituals. They'll embrace an outward form of godliness, but one that's void of any power to change their heart and alter their behavior and revolutionize their life. It's a form without force, a religion without reality. It's a liturgy without life application. It reminds me of the verse... I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a person of a different color or to help a poor man. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not the new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. One day people will learn that God doesn't come in $3 portions. Verse 7 describes the person who's always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Ever met a person like that? Always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Rather than obey what they know, they're looking for a shortcut, for some new insight, for some new revelation. You see, as long as I am looking for a new truth, I can put off obeying that hard truth. I can put off picking up my cross and following Jesus. As an example, Paul mentions Janus and Jambres, the two magicians who confronted Moses in the court of Egypt. Rather than submit to the truth of God, they resisted. And in the end, they were defeated by the power of God. Verse 11 recounts Paul's journey through Timothy's homeland of Galatia. There he had faced many troubles, but he says, Out of them all the Lord delivered me. And in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul makes us a promise. It's a promise. We don't like to claim it very often, but it's true nonetheless. Paul promises us, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Hey, if the world who murdered the master, if it murdered him, why do you think it will befriend you and me? Paul knew that you and I, those who are going to follow Jesus, and if you're going to follow Jesus very far, 
you too need to expect persecution. It will come, he says. The world will grow worse and worse, but Paul tells Timothy to keep his head in the Scriptures. Paul says in verse 15, the same book that was read to Timothy as a baby, that he read as a kid, that he studied in Sunday school, is the book that is able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul states in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, For instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here in chapter 3, verse 16, the Greek word that's translated inspiration is the word theonoustos. It's two Greek words that are combined together. Theos, which means God, and noustos, which means breathed. And so literally, the word inspired means to be God-breathed. You see, the book you hold in your hand that's laying in your lap tonight, it's like no other. It is the very words of God. It is the God-breathed word to you. Now understand, inspiration doesn't mean that the authors of Scripture wrote down the words in a mechanical fashion. It wasn't like God took over their hand suddenly and their hand began to move across the page. That's not how it happened. The Holy Spirit breathed into them what he wanted on the page. The Spirit superintended the composition of Scripture. And in doing so, he used the writer's style, his vocabulary, his culture, even retaining traces of the author's individual personality. And yet the Holy Spirit was overseeing all that. He was prompting, he was directing all that the author wrote to ensure that what was written was exactly what God desired to be written. An illustration of inspiration... Think back to the living word, Jesus Christ. Remember, he was born of a virgin. The spirit supernaturally moved over Mary's womb and planted within her the divine seed. Jesus was the perfect son of God. He was 100 proof God. Yet he possessed human traits, did he not? I'm sure he had dark hair. Probably a Jewish nose. As a baby, people looked at him and remarked about how much he looked like his mother. You see, the divine worked through the human to produce exactly what God desired, but at the same time still retain traces of that humanness. And likewise with the written word. The Holy Spirit moved on the author's mind, his writing style, his vocabulary, but he used all that to birth the Bible. The scriptures are 100 proof divine. They're exactly what God wanted written, and yet they bear still the resemblance of the men who mothered them. Verse 2 says, I'm sorry, verse 16 says that all Scripture was given by inspiration of God. And notice that, all Scripture. Not just certain passages were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but all 66 books, all 1,189 chapters, all 31,173 verses, all 773,692 words, All 3,566,480 letters were all inspired by God. In fact, every single stroke in the original writings were given to us by inspiration of God. In fact, the Jewish rabbis used to say that even the spaces between the letters were inspired by God. 
How's that for detail? And this is exactly what Jesus told us. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, He said, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. You see, a jot was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the tittle was the smallest stroke on the smallest letter. Jesus said that the Scriptures were verbally inspired down to the original strokes. And this is why here at Calvary Chapel, we teach all of the Bible, not just part and parcel. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Did you know that Leviticus is as inspired as Luke? That Hosea is as inspired as Hebrews? A.W. Tozer once said, Nothing less than a whole Bible will make a whole Christian. I love the following poem. I thought I knew the Bible, reading piecemeal, hit or miss. Now a bit of John or Matthew, now a snatch of Genesis. Certain chapters of Isaiah, certain Psalms, the 23rd, 12th of Romans, 1st of Proverbs. Yes, I thought I knew the word, but I found a thorough reading was a different thing to do. And the way was unfamiliar when I read the Bible through. You who treat the crown of writings as you treat no other book, just a paragraph disjointed, just a crude, impatient look, try a worthier procedure, try a broad and steadier view. You will kneel in very rapture when you read the Bible through. All Scripture is given to us by inspiration of God. And notice the end of verse 16. We're told the Bible is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. You see, doctrine is what to believe. The Bible tells you that. Correction is what not to believe. The Bible tells you that too. Instruction is how to live. And then reproof is how not to live. And the Bible covers all four. And according to verse 17, the man of God will find in the Scriptures, in the Bible, all he needs to know to be complete, thoroughly equipped, for every good work. You've probably heard it before, but I, I love to tell the story of the time Zach and I went to the Masters golf tournament and we were sitting on the 18th green and we were talking to a guy from Missouri. And he said, what do you do for a living? And, and I said, well, I'm a pastor. He happened to be a bartender, so that kind of shows you where he was coming from. And he says, you're a pastor. He says, i got a question I want to ask you. I've always wanted to ask one of you guys a question. He said, I've got a friend of mine who, who's going to, to, to be a pastor, and he's going to one of those semi-something. Semi, 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 I said, a seminary. He said, yeah, he's going to a seminary. And, and he's got to go for six years. And he says, I don't understand it. Why does he have to be gone for six years? He says, it just doesn't make sense to me. All you guys got is one book. (laughs) I thought, boy, if we listened to that bartender from Missouri, we'd, we'd be in a lot better shape. This is what he's saying here. He said, the man of God will find in the Scripture, he'll be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Where does he go for that? Where do you go for such a complete education? You go right here to the Word of God. This is all that we need. Christianity is one-stop shopping. Aren't you glad? Everything you need to know, everything you need to grow, everything you need to go and count for Christ is found right here in the pages of this book. 
And after explaining the importance and the power of the Word of God, in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul charges a young and timid Timothy, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, at all times and in every situation, be ready to speak God's truth. And in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, he warns us, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. In the last days, he says, people will desire a watered-down version of the gospel, a gospel without teeth, without truth, They'll cultivate an appetite of half-truths. They'll listen to what teases and to what pleases rather than the Word of God. In verse 5, Paul tells Timothy, Endure afflictions. Fulfill your ministry. Endure afflictions. Fulfill your ministry. Former heavyweight boxing champion, gentleman Jim Corbett, as he was called, he once made this statement. Fight one more round. When your feet are so tired that you have to shuffle back to the center of the ring, fight one more round. When your nose is bleeding and your eyes are black and you're so tired you wish your opponent would just crack you on the jaw and put you to sleep, fight one more round. Remembering that the man who fights one more round never gets whipped. That could be some good encouragement for you and me tonight. Timothy will be opposed. He will be persecuted. He will get tired. But if he endures one more round, he'll never be whipped. Paul is at the end of life's journey. Graduation day is right around the corner. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. You remember the drink offering was the wine that seasoned the sacrifice. In other words, it was the spiritual steak sauce, if you would. And that being the case, you could say that Paul was an A1 servant of the Lord. (laughs) Oh, boy. He lived his life, though, to season the saints and to add flavor and to tenderize hearts. Warren Wearsby points out here, though, that the time has come for his departure. And he defines the word departure. He says it could be defined in four different ways. And it's interesting, they all apply to Paul's death. The word can mean, first, to hoist anchor and to set sail. What a wonderful way to think about death. Paul was about to hoist anchor and sail for heaven's shore. It can also mean to take down a tent. You see, Paul's body had just been a temporary dwelling. Now he's headed to a permanent home. It can also mean to free a prisoner. And death was going to be Paul's escape from the earthly prison that he occupied. And then the last word departure can mean is to unyoke an oxen. Paul had spent a lifetime plowing hearts and serving God. And now he was entering his rest. All four definitions apply to Paul's departure. Verse 7 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith like a boxer that's gone the distance, like a marathon runner who has crossed the finish line. Paul has fought. Paul has finished. And Paul has been faithful. Paul fought a good fight. No shortcuts. No loopholes. No punches below the belt. Paul did God's work, God's way. And he leaves this world with no regrets. What a good goal for your life. To fight a good fight. To keep the faith. To leave this world with no regrets. Verse 8 says, finally, 
There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who love his appearing. Paul is anticipating a heavenly reward. He'll receive the crown of righteousness, a reward given to those saints who love the Lord's appearing. Did you know if you're a rapture watcher, you're going to get a crown in heaven? As a kid, and not just as a kid, I still do, I love my mom very, very much. But you know, I didn't always love her appearing. For if she walked into the room while my hand was in the cookie jar, I didn't love her appearance at that moment. And that's why the crown of righteousness goes to the Christian who keeps his hands out of the cookie jar. Who, yes, lives for the Lord's return, but he doesn't just love the Lord. He loves his appearing because he's ready to meet him at any moment. He's keeping his hands out of the cookie jar. Paul closes his letter with some personal instructions to young Timothy. In verse 9, he wants Timothy to pay a visit. Come to Rome, if you will. In verse 10, Paul rebukes a former friend, a man named Demas, who had abandoned him. And he tells us why. Having loved this present world. How sad. See, the desire for ease and comfort had called Demas to forsake Paul in his time of need, to betray the cause of Christ. Guys, don't let the cares of this world choke out God's word in your heart. In verse 11, we learn that Luke had stayed with Paul. And Paul asked Timothy to bring Mark with him when he comes. You remember at the end of Acts chapter 15, Mark was the reason that Paul and Barnabas quarreled and parted ways. At the time, Paul didn't want to travel with Mark. Apparently, he didn't think Mark to be useful to the ministry. But it's interesting, at the end of his life, he's changed his mind, hasn't he? Now he tells Timothy to bring Mark with you. Apparently Mark had changed. Apparently Paul had forgiven. And apparently what had been a breach had been reconciled and restored. In verse 13, Paul wants his coat. Bring my coat. The weather in Rome is turning cold. He also wants Timothy to bring the books, especially the parchments. Paul, perhaps Christianity's greatest teacher, was ever the student. Even at the end of his life, he was pressing for more. His desire was to immerse himself once again in the study of Scripture. In verse 14, Paul warns Timothy about an enemy. And in verse 16, he forgives his friends who, when he needed them most, left him and acted like enemies. You see, at his first trial before Nero, Paul says of all his buddies, no one stood with me. Have you ever felt that way? Just feel like you've been abandoned by everybody. And yet even when everyone else had abandoned him, Paul says in verse 17, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Everybody might abandon you guys, but the Lord will stand with you to the very end. And Paul concludes, I was delivered That first trial, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Rather than being taken to the Colosseum and thrown to the man-eating lions, God spared Paul's life. Paul tells Timothy in verse 21, Do your utmost to come before winter. Now, the theologians have a myriad 
of interpretations for verse 21. You can go to Bible commentaries and you can read all kinds of postulations, hypotheses, for why Paul wanted Timothy to come before winter. And you can read of men who've read all kinds of spiritual significance into these words here in verse 21. But remember what he asked him earlier? Bring my coat, Timothy. I believe he just wanted his coat before it got too cold. Sometimes the best interpretation is the most obvious one. And the final words Paul ever penned are words to his friend, his friend Timothy. In chapter 4, verse 22, The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. And that's my final words to you tonight. May the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen.